Now, would you turn to Matthew chapter 18 for a moment, please? Matthew chapter 18 and then over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 18, and we'll read from verse 15. Matthew 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. And then let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, reading from verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Amen. On the 3rd of September, 1553, a group known as the Libertines uh, swaggered into St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva, determined to participate in the Lord's Supper. Their leader was a man called Philbert uh, Bertillet, uh, who had been excommunicated by the church and banned from the Lord's Supper. They sat right under the pulpit, uh, their hands on the hilts of their swords, trying to intimidate the preacher. John Calvin, after he preached, came down and positioned himself between the table uh, and these men. And Calvin said, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours. You may shed it, but I w you will never force me to give, the holy, to give holy things to the profane. I will die rather than give the sacred things of the Lord to those 
who have been judged despisers of sacred things. The threatening group of young men, one by one, left, and the congregation continued to celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, as we are told, in silence and great trembling. Calvin put his life on the line to uphold the discipline of the church. The Reformers defined the church as the place where the word is preached, where the sacraments are observed, and where discipline is administered. And anyone who takes seriously the teaching of the New Testament cannot deny the importance that church discipline played in the life of the early church. God's desire for his church is holiness. The covenant community is to be distinguished by holiness. The church cannot preach and teach a message that it doesn't maintain itself. And any Bible church must exercise discipline if it is going to retain any integrity and credibility before a watching world. If false professors can be admitted into church membership, they can. And if the most genuine of believers can fall into sin, and they can, then it is absolutely essential that the church of Jesus Christ exercises discipline if it is to have any spiritual or moral authority in the world. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, only mentioned the church twice. Matthew 16, he gives that glorious promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then in the passage that we read in Matthew 18, he sets forth the process of church discipline. So discipline was important to Jesus. He assumed that it would be practiced by his church. And if Jesus thought it was uh, to, uh, important enough to, to mention, and if Paul thought that it should be implemented, and if Calvin and the other reformers thought it was significant enough to put their lives in jeopardy, then you can be sure church discipline is a subject that we should cover on this series that we're looking at on the church. Now, this morning, I want to take a case study on church discipline uh, from First uh, Corinthians 5. And I want you to notice a number of things. First of all, the problem exposed. Look at verse 1 of First Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The problem sta uh, stated simply uh, was that the Corinthian church had uh, tolerated immorality among its membership. Now, the actual sin is identified for us when Paul says, a man has his father's wife. In other words, there was a form of incest being tolerated in the church. The phrase, his father's wife, indicates it wasn't his natural mother, but someone who had married his father after his own mother died or had been divorced. Now, that didn't in any way minimize the crime because the Old Testament in Leviticus 18 makes it clear that the, uh, uh, having a, a relationship with your uh, stepmother is exactly in the same category as having a relationship with your uh, mother. And both offenses were punishable by death. 
Indeed, such practices, even in the moral cesspool of the ancient world, were considered to be wicked. Paul says in verse 1, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. We know that such incest was forbidden by Roman law. Cicero, a Roman lawyer who lived a century before, um, wrote of a woman who had married her son-in-law. And he writes this, Oh, to think of this woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of in all experience, save this single incident. So even within paganism generally, never mind the church in Corinth specifically, this was a wicked, wicked sin. This was a grievous sin, and it was a scandal among the churches. Paul says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality. News of this sin had spread among the churches like wildfire. Wildfire, it was a scandalous sin that outraged the people who heard about it. But not only was it scandalous, it was continuous. The word has, has his uh, father's wife indicates that this sin was uh, still going on. This was a, a, a sin that was being uh, continued in the church and nobody was doing anything uh, about it. That was the problem exposed. Secondly, notice the response expected. Notice the response of the Corinthians in verse 2. And you are arrogant. That word was used for pumping up bellows, puffing up bellows. For reasons that we can only speculate, the Corinthians were actually proud of this wickedness in the congregation. Indeed, in verse 6, we are told that they were actually boasting about it. Your boasting is not good. No wonder it was generally or everywhere reported. Far from being ashamed and trying to hide the sin, the Corinthians were actually boasting about the sin in a most the most arrogant of ways. They probably excused it or rationalized it in some way. They imagined themselves to be sophisticated, to a, a belonging to a spiritually uh, enlightened uh, contemporary congregation. Before First Corinthians had instructed them uh, on this. Uh, matter, but they knew better. Perhaps it was in the name of Christian liberty that they tolerated this man. It wouldn't be right for us to judge him. He's free to do what he thinks is right. Let conscience be his guide. That's, by the way, not a scriptural principle. That's uh, a principle that comes from the lips of Jimothy Cricket. Uh, perhaps it was in the name of Christian love. We can't treat our dear brother harshly. We have got to win him back with love. Perhaps it was money. If this man could afford to alienate his father by stealing his wife, he must have been independently wealthy. And perhaps, like in so many churches, uh, sin is not dealt with because they don't want a drop in offerings. Money not only talks, but more money can tolerate sin. So their response was unbelievably one of arrogance, pride, and boasting. Now, what should their response have been? Well, look at verse uh, 2 again. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn that him who has done this be removed from among you? 
The response that they should have made was to mourn over this man's sin and to discipline this man. Paul says, shouldn't you, uh, or ought you not, rather to mourn? They ought to have been filled with grief, a deep sense of grief. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted that the true Christian is to be identified and distinguished by his mourning over sin. As he reflects on God's holiness and purity, it's a constant source of grief to him that he has sinned against that holiness. He is broken-hearted over his own feelings, and he is driven then to the fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness. And in Jesus' blood, he finds relief for his soul. That is his continuous experience until he reaches heaven and is finally uh, delivered from uh, uh, sin uh, in, in all its fullness. Now, what is true of the Christian individually should be true of the church corporately. The church should mourn over sin, grieve over its feelings and shortcomings, especially within its own membership. Instead of boasting about their love and liberty, they ought to have been cut to their heart and cried out to God in repentance. The question that Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper, is so often used to turn a blind eye to sin. But in the church, we have mutual obligations and collective responsibilities. And when one sins, it ought to be a source of deep grief to the whole body. So they should have been filled with grief. They should have mourned over the sin. And then secondly, they ought to have disciplined the man. Look at verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Action should have been taken long before Paul had to write this letter to them. Discipline ought to have been administered and the man removed from fellowship. That is the right response the biblical response, and the loving response. If they truly loved the man, they would have acted in this way. You see, discipline is not inconsistent with love. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 tells us, the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. The man who fails to discipline his children, uh, uh, the wise man in Proverbs tells us, hates his children. Discipline is not only the correct response, but it's a loving response. That's the action that should have been taken. They ought to have mourned over his sin and removed him from membership. Notice, um, incidentally, and I think this is an important point to make, that the discipline is for a scandalous sin or a grievous sin. Some... Uh, Churches are trigger-happy when it comes to discipline. Some pastors are trigger-happy when it comes to discipline. This man was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. He wasn't going out to a dinner dance. His wife wasn't wearing trousers or his daughter's skirt was a bit short. He wasn't playing sport on a Sunday. He... he uh, wasn't attending a, a football match. He, he, he wasn't uh, picking the ears of corn on the Sabbath day. He was sleeping 
with his stepmother. And it seems to me that when you read the New Testament, church discipline, which leads to excommunication, putting somebody out of fellowship, is reserved for serious and scandalous sins. The response expected. They should have been mourning over the condition and they should have disciplined the man. The problem exposed, the response expected, the action encouraged. Paul has already told them what they should have done. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 3, he tells them that he already had passed judgment in his mind on the man. And he asked them to be one with him in that judgment and take the necessary action to rectify the situation. Now, the Corinthians may have said, judge not lest ye be judged. They may have argued that since Paul doesn't, wasn't there, how could he know all the facts? But to Paul, the issue was clear. It was black and white. And although he was absent, he brings the proposal to the church meeting asking them to discipline this, this man. Look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with uh, the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I notice Paul calls a church meeting. He, as an apostle, doesn't discipline the man. He doesn't call on the elders to discipline the man. He calls on the church to discipline the man. Since it is the church that admits members, it must be the church that removes members. The church is to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, an official uh, um, constituted meeting of the church with, uh, was to be called that has all the dignity uh, and uh, gravity of a church worship service. Notice that Paul says and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. He says he would be with them in spirit, but he reminds them that Jesus would be with them as well. Do you remember that promise that we read in Matthew 18, uh, where Jesus sets forth that process of discipline? And he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. So in this matter of discipline, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will be present. John MacArthur says, Never is the church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with her Lord when dealing with sin to maintain uh, purity. Jesus promised to be with his church in this whole matter of discipline. Now at this meeting, Paul says in verse 5, that this man is to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, there are, are various opinions suggested. Some mean, uh, uh, some think that it, uh, what is meant is that he's handed over to Satan like Job so that he will... Um, increasingly experience suffering in his body, which ultimately will lead to death, the destruction of the flesh, and he 
uh, his spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. I don't think that's, that's right. I think the phrase, deliver this man to Satan, is the parallel statement to verse 2, let him who has done this be, uh, be removed from among you. So there are two kingdoms, two spheres operating in our world. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And to hand this man over to Satan was to put him outside the church to give him over to the world. It meant to withdraw fellowship from him, the means of grace from him, to put him outside the fellowship of God's people, leaving him alone and exposed in Satan's world. The word deliver there in verse 5 is a strong word which indicates a judicial act of sentencing. He was formally to be removed from the church. Now, the purpose of that removal was that it might bring about the destruction of the flesh. The NIV says the sinful nature. Now, when Paul uses this word flesh or sarks in the original, he almost always, not exclusively, but almost always is referring to the old nature, the works of the flesh. Galatians 5 and verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, and the like. Those are the works of the flesh. And we battle with the flesh every day. And the things that help us in that battle with the flesh, we are to crucify the flesh. The things that happen, help us in the battle with the flesh is the fellowship of God's people, the prayers of God's people, the preaching of God's Word, partake, partaking in the Lord's table. All these things are a means of grace to strengthen us in this battle with the flesh. And so to hand this man over to Satan was to deprive him of the very means of grace that would help him to deal with a sinful nature. Now, what would happen to him if he was a true believer? Well, the spiritual nature within him would be horrified. It would be shocked into seeking repentance and restoration. His spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. And that's the purpose of church discipline. In depriving the true believer of the means of grace, the sinful nature, the flesh, is destroyed so that his spirit will ultimately be saved. Of course, the false professor will be consumed by the flesh, consumed by that sinful nature, and never be brought to repentance. So to hand this man over to Satan was to put him outside the protective power of the covenant community and expose him to Satan's attacks. And such a person was would be in an extremely vulnerable spiritual condition. It's, it's equivalent to being dropped defenseless, disarmed, and disowned behind 
uh, enemy lines. And that's what excommunication uh, involves. By putting him outside the church, it teaches him his need of repentance uh, so that the sinful nature would be destroyed. This action and sanction would have horrified the early Corinthian church. You know, there was no other church to go to. There was only one church. They were put outside of the church. They never could take the Lord's table. They could uh, uh, never exercise a ministry. And they couldn't pray publicly. It was to leave this man in Satan's territory, exposed and vulnerable. And yet such an action was to, necessary to shake him from his lethargy and to bring him to repentance. Now, you do see something of the importance of the church here. To remove, be removed from the church is to put yourself in Satan's territory. In this world, we need the church. That's why the writer to the Hebrews tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. We need fellowship. We need the support that we can give to one another. We need the prayers of God's people. We need to pray together. We need the systematic teaching of, of the Word of God. We need constantly to be brought back to Calvary through the Lord's table. To be deprived of those things is to hand yourself over to Satan. To be dropped in enemy territory. And you know the sad thing? The sad thing is, People, Christians, hand themselves over to Satan. By absenting themselves from the means of grace, they're leaving themselves vulnerable in the world. That's why you need to belong to a church. And that's why you need to be in membership of a church, because you need the church as much as the church needs you. This is why you need to come to the prayer meeting, why you need to stay for the Lord's table. It seems incredible to me that something that was so feared in the early church being put outside the church that Christians will do to themselves. It's like spiritual self-harming. Are you so cocky and sure of your faith that you feel you can do without the means of grace? Are you more confident in your Christian walk than God is confident of you. God placed us in churches for a reason. The action encouraged. The problem exposed, the response expected. The action encouraged, the reason explained. There are two reasons given in the passage for this discipline. The restoration of the individual and the protection of the church. First of all, the restoration of the individual. Look again at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Discipline always sounds a, a, a severe response, a, a, an overreaction. But the consequences of not exercising discipline are much worse. If he is allowed to go unchecked, he will simply be confirmed in his sin. Discipline is a loving necessity that this man would be restored and ultimately saved on the day of the Lord. Just as you discipline your children because you love them, um, you want what's best for them, so the church must discipline to bring this man back 
uh, 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 to bring its erring children back. Discipline is for the good of the individual, but also for the church. And it's interesting when you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it, it seems that this man did repent and was restored to the fellowship. Paul talks about the, the discipline inflicted by the majority uh, is enough. And they, they should reaffirm their love for him. So it worked. Now, it doesn't work in every situation. But it did work in this situation. And the man was restored. And then secondly, the protection of the church. Look at verses 6 and 7. Uh, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is something that all Paul's readers would have uh, really uh, and readily understood. The Passover feast celebrated the deliverance of the Jewish people from the bondage in the land of Egypt. And the Jews were required before the Passover feast to search the house and uh, remove all leaven from their house. Then they would make unleavened bread to eat at the feast, but they had to be absolutely sure that there was no contamination of leaven in the new lump of dough. The leaven represented, you see, the old life in Egypt, the life they were leaving behind. And Paul applies this to the church. uh, Did you not know that you have left your old life Don't you know that you've left your old life behind and all your sinful habits and practices? Now, he says, if you fail to discipline this man, his influence will spread like leaven, like cancer through the whole church. It will not long stay uh, isolated. Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We might say one bad apple spoils the barrel. If left alone, this man's sin would permeate the whole church and eventually destroy it. That's why sin had to be dealt with, because it would destroy the rest of the church if left unchecked. A large congregation, uh, an impressive Sunday school, and every other sort of uh, program will give no protection to a church that is not faithful in cleansing itself. When sin is willfully or casually left unchallenged and undisciplined, the very witness of the church itself is in danger of being lost. We must, as Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven. The reason uh, explained. The last thing, and very quickly, I just want you to notice is the motivation examined there at the end of verse 7. For, notice that word for, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. After the baking of the bread, the Passover lamb was sacrificed to commemorate the passing of over the Israelite homes by the angel of death. Now, since Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, since he has died to redeem us from our old life and to redeem us from sin, then we must rid this sin out of our lives and out of the church. 
verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you see, the best motivation for holy living and the best motivation for uh, a holy community and maintaining the, the standards of the church is the gospel itself. If Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed in order to purchase our salvation and free us from sin, then we ought to turn from sin, not only individually, but corporately as a church. We are the unleavened bread, and Christ is the Passover lamb. David Brainerd, the great forerunner of, of, of most of the modern missionaries, um, uh, was a missionary to the American Indians in the colonies, and he wrote this in his journal. He says, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give instructions about morality. You see, what he's saying, when he set forth Christ as the great sacrifice for sin, as the great remedy for sin. Then he didn't have to lecture them on, on morality and holiness and conformity to the Word of God because as they saw Christ in all his beauty and wonder and the sacrifice that he made, that that in itself was the mainspring of their desire to live a holy life. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. If that is true, if he died to redeem us from sin, to purchase our salvation, then how can we do anything else but live a life that is pleasing to him, a life that is surrendered to him, and a life that is marked by holiness, not only individually, but corporately as a church. Let's be sure that we think of Christ, that we meditate upon Christ, that we preach Christ because He is our Passover lamb and He is the great motivating factor for holiness in our lives. Amen.